All right. Good morning, Pillar family. Our scripture focus this morning will be from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jason. Hey, family. How y'all doing? Yeah, this guy up front's doing good. <laughs> All right, so I'm, I'm pumped to be with you uh, and to get into to Colossians. I'm also pumped that uh, a lot of you have already interacted with or will be interacting with Colossians this year, whether through a men's group, uh, the women's conference, uh, your MC. I think that's great because uh, uh, Colossians is rich. Like all scripture, you can't, get, you can't get everything in one pass. So each pass that you make through it, uh, you know, can feel a little different, uh, you know, it, it reveals more. And just to put things in perspective a little bit, Matt Chandler has a, a, 
a series where he preaches through Colossians in 20 hours, okay? I get two, all right? I'm not Matt Chandler. I'm not John Ransom. I'm the guy who comes out of the bullpen and tries to throw strikes in relief for John Ransom. So needless to say, pray for me and uh, understand, please, that some things will not be said. Um, now, I can go toe-to-toe with John on baseball analogies, so I will say that. There will be no shortage of that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Um, so I do have 60-plus pages of notes on this, not for today, but for this series. And I want you to know that that exegetical work uh, was done so that I could talk to you about what we will talk about over four weeks' time. I will not be delivering those 60-plus pages to you uh, for you to download and to just get the fire hose of this. It's not the aim of what I'm trying to do uh, here. Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to give you a lecture so you can get all the information that I found out. Um, Instead, I'm going to try to get at the message that the author, Paul, uh, intended to give to his original audience, the Colossians, And then I'm going to try to get at the meaning for us today, the application to our hearts and lives, and how all of this gets fulfilled in Jesus. So I want to share that with you so you know how to be approaching this series. With that being said, the theme for the series is returning to our roots. We flourish in life only as we continue walking in Jesus as we first received him. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming, for taking on flesh, for uh, embodying truth and hope for us, uh, for us to look to you and believe in you and to have that, that it's real, that that when we look to you, we're not looking to something uh, that is empty, that is only an illusion, a deception. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and being really the truth and the hope of the world. Uh, We thank you. We we ask you for your empowerment. Holy Spirit, empower me. Empower all of us to uh, hear your word and to receive it, to be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like most four-year-olds, my daughter, Mahari, uh, likes to play pretend. And uh, she pulls me into into some pretty interesting stories through pretend. Some of them are very standard. Daddy, pretend we live in a castle. Okay, all right. Daddy, pretend we're fighting bad guys or we're running from something. Okay, all right, I can do that. Um, And then then one day she pulled out. She was like, Daddy, pretend I'm your baby that you found in the rain. I'm not that versatile. (laughs) Uh, Why is my baby in the rain the first? Daddy, it doesn't matter. It's pretend. All right? Um, One day she even, like, I didn't know what to think because she came up to me and she goes, Daddy, pretend I'm your child and you're the parent. (laughs) Wait, what's going on here? Are you trying? She's clever. All right? She plays mind games a little bit. She's pretty smart. She's trying to reverse things on me. I caught that. She told me one time that she's the boss. She's not the, she's not the boss. She's not. I keep telling myself that. 
Well, this seems to be an effective way to pull people into stories. And I want to pull you into the Colossians story. And I'm going to intro, intro you to the setting and the situation of the, of the letter to the Colossians through pretend. We're going to do a little pretending. Let's pretend that we're the Colossians, all right? Uh, we've just received this letter from Paul. It's a decent length, about 2,000 words in English, three pages, single space, 13-minute read. Paul, at the beginning of it, introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he is a messenger for Christ, establishing the church through gospel proclamation and ministry. That's who's writing to you, the apostle Paul. Now, as a Colossian, you probably know of Paul, but you have not met him face to face. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, You and those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul is not your church planter. Paul is not your pastor. Your church planter is Epaphras, the guy you went to high school with. He's a fellow Colossian. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you. He's a fellow Colossian. Now, he probably heard the gospel whenever, uh, he probably went, heard it in Ephesus, uh, or one of the nearby cities where Paul was preaching, and then brought it back to his hometown to Colossae and planted a church. Or he at least preached the gospel because it says that just as you learned it from Epaphras, chapter 1, verse 7, you learned the gospel from Epaphras. So he at least preached the gospel to you. You trusted in Christ. A church is now in Colossae because of that. Now at some point, your pastor church planter possibly, went to visit Paul in Rome, and he didn't come back. He got imprisoned with Paul. Uh, Philemon 23 says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner. He's there with Paul in chains. Uh, Philemon was written at the same time as, as Colossians. Uh, so Paul's got him there, and he's passing on some updates about Epaphras. Uh, Verse uh, 7 says, you know, Paul's just trying to pass on. He's like, hey, I want you to know he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. I want you to know that about the guy you heard the gospel from, your pastor. Verse 8, Epaphras has made known to us your love in the spirit. Chapter 4, verse 12 Epaphras greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He's not here praying just so he can get out of these chains, just so his situation can change. He's on his knees struggling and fighting for you in prayer for you. Verse 13, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. So you have a faithful pastor who remains faithful to Christ to you even in chains. And the apostle who pre first preached the gospel to your pastor has now written to you. Now a little bit about your town, Colossae. It's part of the Roman Empire uh, and it will eventually, uh, the region around it will eventually become the country of Turkey. There's a Google pen right there. You see Italy, you see the Balkans and Greece, and over here you see Turkey. And right there is where Colossae would be. 
Um, that used to be the Roman Empire. Now, a very important thing about your town's history. I'm not going to give you a whole history lesson about Colossae, but I do want you to remember one thing. This is the thing that the guys in the barber shop talk about whenever they talk about the good old days of Colossae. They talk about the crossroads that used to be near your house through which people would travel and would bring in a lot of people into your town because they would travel through that crossroads to get to other major cities. So your town used to be a travel center that people would come to in order to get to other destinations. But as time went by, by the time you received this letter from Paul, those roads had been moved to Laodicea, which Google Maps puts at about 18 kilometers away, about a three and a half hour walk if you take the 320. Without the same traffic coming through, with those roads moved down this, uh, this way, down the road, your town went into decline and was basically forgotten. J.B. Lightfoot comments, Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. Least important. Ouch. It's where you live. You're a church, you're believers in a forgotten town. But God doesn't remember as the world remembers. It's not based on economy, not based on the influence of your local culture. God, uh, God does things like having the Apostle Paul write one of the richest Christological letters to your forgotten town. That's the grace of God. This could have easily been written to a much bigger city, but he wrote it to you. There was another, you know, I said that road got moved to Laodicea, and Laodicea became very, very important. A letter was also written to Laodicea. If you see in chapter 4, he says, hey, exchange letters with the Laodiceans and uh, read their letter, have your letter read to them. Uh, We don't have the Laodiceans' letter. The Colossians one made it into Scripture, the one that was written to the forgotten town. And has helped the church for centuries to root their Christology in the truth. All right, so the religious and spiritual condition or landscape of your town, pretty chaotic. Pretty chaotic. Uh, Pretty hilarious. Uh, People are having their, their spirituality like they're having their Starbucks drinks, okay? It's totally custom ordered. People are like, yeah, I'm going to have the the grande angel worship cult with three pumps of Jewish law, no asceticism, extra pagan. All right? That's how they're having their spirituality. It's a mix. The major religions in the region, are they're they're picking and, and choosing from that, and they're throwing in some local flavors. They're having it their way. Custom ordered to fit them. Strangely, but maybe not so strangely, this, the result of this custom-ordered spirituality, they're getting what they want, and it's not fulfilling them. It's not fulfilling. It's coming up empty. It seems kind of counterintuitive, right? You give someone exactly what they want, and yet they're not satisfied. Those of you who are parents in the room know exactly how that works. (laughs) Never satisfied. But rather than being fulfilled, 
they're confused. And this leads them to look for more and more new spiritualities. And they're cropping up all the time. There's these mystery religions that are cropping up. They say, hey, we will, we will show you, we'll take you to a higher level if you just go through our initiation process, go through these rituals right here, you will enter into a higher level of knowledge. And so people are, are considering those as well. Now, in the midst of all this confusion, Epaphras hears the gospel, he brings it back to his town, he preaches it, and people begin trusting in Christ. The gospel begins to grow. The gospel begins to bring clarity. It begins to root people in Christ. Verses 3 through 8 of the letter are Paul celebrating the, uh, the work of God through the gospel in the world and how this global gospel is being reflected in the little town of Colossae. This gospel has crossed continents. It's crossed countries and languages and peoples and tribes and ethnicities. It has, it has traveled and it's made it to your town of Colossae. And he's saying that the, the work of God in your town is a genuine work of God. He's saying that you understood it, you believed it, you heard it. It's bearing fruit. And it's bearing fruit because it's real, because you believe the gospel, because you didn't believe just what you wanted to believe. You believed what was brought to you and it was the truth. And it's bearing fruit because it's real, because there's life in it. Paul says that Epaphras made known the Colossians' love in the Spirit. Now, that may read as if in the Spirit is the mode or the method in which Epaphras communicated the love. Like, here's how Epaphras communicated the love. He communicated in the Spirit. No, actually what that means is that love is in the Spirit, and as in it has divine origin as in it's supernaturally worked, as in it doesn't naturally come from our hearts. It doesn't naturally spring from our hearts. It has to be worked by God and God alone. It's a genuine work of God. And so Paul is celebrating this authentic work of God at Colossae through the gospel. Now Paul from there makes an interesting move. He goes from celebration that the Colossians are walking in the gospel to, hey, I'm praying that you'll walk in the gospel. Seems a little bit backwards. And then, that's 9 through 11, 12 through 23, he proclaims the gospel again. He doesn't go, gospel, I'm praying that you'll walk in the gospel, I just preach to you, and then I'm celebrating that you are. He goes, celebration, you're doing it. I'm praying for you that you would do it. This is what you need to do. This is where you need to go. Why does it seem he's moving backwards here? When you look at it that way, it's a little jarring because we have this innate sense in us, this expectation that progress means moving forward, not backwards. Okay, we think that progress means moving forward, not backwards. You might remember in 2008, you might, the last service, only like four people remembered this. All right, so I feel like I'm getting a little old. 2008, the curious case of Benjamin Button. Anybody? Okay, all right, a few, all right. Um, 
those of us who, who saw it uh, remember that this movie is about a person who is born old, an old man, and as time passes, time is moving forward, but he is getting younger. Um, but even though that sounds good, the younger, getting younger doesn't stop. This isn't fountain of youth kind of stuff. He literally ends up at the end of the movie, a baby that passes away as a baby, takes his first breath as his last breath. It's kind of strange. Um, and I remember Roger Ebert's review of this movie, and he's like, great acting, well-made, good production values, but it doesn't work. He's like, this is not the way that stories move. Because the best of what life has to offer is experience moving forward. The couple in the movie kind of just pass by each other. She gets older and he gets younger. And eventually she's an older woman holding a baby. And he's like, this is not a story. I mean, this is not the way the stories move. They don't grow old together. That's a gift that God has given us in life. That even though we're fallen and our bodies get old and die, we do at least get the gift of growing old together. And it's very special. So we want to hear stories that move forward. And it kind of violates that sense when we hear of something going from a growth stage to the growth stage behind it, to the growth stage behind it. We, we, we feel like it needs to move forward in each growth stage. So what is this? Is Paul writing a Benjamin Button story in the middle of Colossians? Or is the joke from, I love the joke from The Office, it's like Benjamin Button in reverse. <laughs> Actually, neither, I think. Neither. There is something prompting Paul to write this way, and that's two things. The pressures that the Colossians are facing requires them to return to their roots to ensure they continue in the faith. They've got to return to their roots. And number two, returning to their roots requires them to return to the gospel. So earlier I told you that Colossae had previously been the location of a crossroads. You might say that with their founding pastor in jail and the spiritually confused culture around them constantly offering deceptively appealing alternatives to Christ, the Colossians have come to a crossroads. Verse 23 contains the first crossroads of the letter. Up to this point, Paul has merely uh, said declarative statements. He's just declaring things and exclamatory statements. But here's the first conditional statement. It includes an if, all right? It's a crossroads. This is why Paul is writing to them. And this is also why we have the letter to the Colossians today. One of the reasons. We can be directly inserted into this statement. That's what I'm going to do now, and I'm just going to read it to you. Pillar, to the saints at Pillar, to the brothers and sisters at Pillar. You, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If. It's a big word. It means a lot. So that if begs the question. It's like, all right, we needed to hear everything before this, but now 
It's kind of like when your teacher's talking, and then they're like, so the homework assignment is, it's like, your ears perk up, it's like, perk up, it's like, okay, we're going to have to do something, all right? I got to engage with this, okay? If, and so the question is, what is it to continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel? If we look ahead to chapter 2, if you follow me there to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we get a central theme in Colossians, if not the central theme. Uh, You see this turn that Paul makes uh, throughout Colossians, and that is uh, we have this idea that uh, to, to walk in Christ has to do with being rooted in him and uh, to walk in him as we received him. And so he brings them back to their roots. What is it to be rooted in Christ? We've got to go back to that. What does that even mean? To be rooted in Christ is for our hearts to reach for Christ for our sustenance, to reach to him for the hope and the joy that we crave and need, not reaching towards the other things, not substitutes, not idols, but reaching to him like roots. Roots are not sentient beings like us. They don't think and calculate and say, I'm going to go this way, that's where the water's at. But roots were created with a way to sense where water is and where more moisture is, and they begin to grow in that direction. And so whenever we sense something, whenever hearts sense something, our minds conceive or perceive of something that has what we want, we begin to reach for it. We begin to grow towards it, and our lives begin to grow around it like roots so we can draw from it. This rootedness primarily concerns the heart because the heart is the central part of us that the Bible speaks to. But naturally, there are implications for every part of what we are. The habits, the rhythms, the rituals of our lives reflect what our hearts are reaching for, for sustenance. When we begin to shift from the hope of the gospel by making something else the source that we draw from, whether it be a relationship career advancement, comfort, etc. This will begin to have an effect on everything that makes us up. It'll begin to shape our thinking because that's like the roots begin to take shape based on where they're trying to pull from. And our thinking begins to take shape to try to pull from whatever we're trying to pull from, that sustenance. Our emotions are shaped by it. Our choices are shaped by it. And as we see in verses 23, 21 through 23, there is a connection to our eternity. Those who, in the end, are presented holy and blameless before God do not shift from the hope of the gospel. Now, if I were to speak to you right now and just say that, just say, there it is, there's the command, go do it. And I would not be serving you well. I'd be sending you into sure and certain defeat and failure. I'd not be serving you well. That is the command the scripture says. It's saying, go and remain steadfast. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. That's true. But you and I, we can't do that on our own. We can't do that on our own strength. So if I were to characterize 
this as just a crossroads that you come to, and I'm giving you the right directions, and you just need to go in the right direction, I would not be equipping you well. I'd be sending you towards failure. Because that is because when we come to a crossroads, we experience pressure, overwhelming pressure to shift from the gospel. It isn't merely, I need to know which direction I need to go. It's, I also need the power to go in the direction that I'm being told that I should go. Because there's things that are pushing me in the other directions. Now, many of you in this room, unlike me, are living through a scheduled uprooting every two to three years. It's scheduled. You know it. A lot of times you know exactly when it's coming. And when that time comes, your relationships and your rhythms are all ripped away from the things that they were formed around. And that's brutal. That is so hard on your heart. I only see the back end of that. When you leave, we hurt. But you know what? You've got to go to a new place. So you get ripped out, and then you've got to form new habits and new rhythms and new relationships. That's hurt. That's hurtful. But I can see how there would be enormous pressure to avoid the pain of that scheduled uprooting by not forming deep relationships within Christian community, not joining an MC, not starting up a fight club, not getting to know each other deeply, not serving, not getting in the life, involved in the life of a local expression of God's family. Just go to work and then sit in church on Sunday morning, minimize the pain in the work of forming new relationships. I understand it. That's natural. That's natural. Trying to minimize that pain. That's the pressure. I don't want to do it again. I already had to say goodbye to so many people. I don't want to do it again. That's the pressure. Some of you may be experiencing disillusionment. We are a disillusionment generation. We see behind the curtains. Everything is deconstructed. Nothing has charm anymore. Nothing is seen as a whole. There's no mystery. It's all broken down. We have the information, the analysis. We know what's all behind it. So we're disillusioned. And even more disillusioning is we see the people behind it and what gets hidden when scandals come out. And we're so disillusioned by the... By the bad, fallen, evil behavior of people behind these things. And the church is not exempt from that. We see that in the church. We experience that in the church. There there are scandals in the church. There are cover-ups in the church. There are things that you've experienced in the church, and people have hurt you. Now, rather than having our expectations tempered by and formed by Scripture and by the love of Christ in the In the spirit, there is a pressure to give up on the church altogether. See you guys. I'm going to let all the hypocrites do what they do. And I'm going to find another group, not the church, because the church just won't meet my expectations. I want to find another place, people who won't be that way. They'll fit what I'm expecting them to be. So see you, all you people who, who don't form around my expectations. I, want, I don't want to be hurt again. I don't want to be let down again or disillusioned. So I'm going to find another group that fits what I have, expect, the expectations I have right now. 
Some of you may feel like you are being rejected in some way by God, by the church, by the gospel. And to an extent, we all are. We all have things in our lives that the gospel is rejecting and calling us to reject. That doesn't mean that God is rejecting you completely. You and I deserve rejection, but because Jesus was rejected, we get accepted. That doesn't mean that God accepts everything you do, everything you like, everything you think, everything you desire. But the perception can be this. It can be, you know what? The Bible is calling me to conform, and I'm not about conformity. I'm not going to conform to what the preacher is saying, to what my MC is saying, to what these people, this community, you know what? That is wrong. That's control. That, I shouldn't be called to conform to others. Well, should we be called to conform to you? Should you be con- called to conform to me? See, there's no good in game there if we follow that way of thinking. If we say, I'm not going to conform, I just need to be provided the space where I can flourish however I want to. I want to be released from the pressure. I want to I embrace a set of beliefs that will give me the cathartic experience, the release from the call to change, except for any change that I determine is right for me. I want to drive up to the drive through window and order my change and order whatever way I think I should change and, and be conformed to myself, whatever I think right now. So those are, those are powerful forces that run through our hearts, currents that run through our hearts, run through our culture. When we come to a crossroads, we are usually experiencing multifaceted pressure to shift from the gospel. Multifaceted pressure. And naturally, when we experience pressure, we want catharsis. We want lifestyles that promise better experiences or results. Our minds give us trouble, our hearts rebel, and the culture isn't helping out either because the culture is continually moving. It's continually changing. The goalposts are changing. The standards are changing. Thank you. And there's new opportunities being created and new challenges. It's confusing, very confusing. So if we're shaped by the culture, we'll be constantly confused. And for those of us, if we try to stand on our own strength, these internal and external forces will just carry us along. And we won't be choosing where we go to the cross, uh, through the crossroads. We will be carried through by these forces if we try to do it ourselves. It reminds me a little bit of Riptide. Um, living in Okinawa, Riptide is something that you should be aware of. You probably are. Many of you probably know how to get out of Riptide and how to get out of many other things uh, great, you know, other than Riptide. But for the sake of illustration today, I'm going to relate to you how to get out of Riptide. So riptide, for one, what it is, it's whenever you have the waves hitting the shore like they normally do, and that water just kind of makes its way back into the ocean nice and slow. But there's a sandbar underneath the water, and sometimes there's a break in that. 
And instead of the waves coming in and just kind of gingerly going back into the ocean, uh, the water comes crashing in and flows toward that break, and it's an inlet that the water rushes back out into the sea, and it will carry everything out into the sea, including you, if you get caught up in it. Riptide is very dangerous, and uh, maybe for several reasons, but uh, maybe the, the biggest reason uh, or the biggest way that riptide can be dangerous is our response to it, our wrong response to it. It can be deadly if we respond wrong, uh, in the wrong way. So when you're caught in a riptide, the way that you get out when you're being pulled out to sea uh, is to not follow your natural instinct. I'm being pulled away from the shore. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to swim back to the shore. That is why it's dangerous because that's the natural inclination. And when people do that, it's humanly impossible. You cannot beat the riptide. You are not strong enough. What will happen is you will tire yourself out and you could drown because you're fighting the riptide. If you stay in that fight for survival that just is looking against the riptide. So how you get out of a riptide is you don't look at the water, you don't look at the current and respond to the current. You look at the shore and you swim parallel to the shore. The shore is your reference point. And you don't swim against the current, you swim across the current until you're out of the riptide and you can swim back. There's other ways to get out, but that's the one I'm going to present to you today for sake of illustration. When we come to a crossroads and we experience the pressure to shift from the gospel, what's our natural response? I'm hearing a sermon, I'm reading a book, and the indicator, the warning lights are going off. Uh Uh-oh, I'm drifting I'm getting away from the gospel. I'm getting away from Christ. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to muscle back. I'm going to white knuckle this. I'm going to, I'm going to beat the current because I'm feeling these currents push me away from Christ, away from the gospel. So I'm, I got I to gotta work against them. I got to swim against it. But trying to be faithful to God in our own strength has deadly results. Deadly. Why? Because we're trying to not shift from the hope of the gospel by shifting from the hope of the gospel. When you received Christ, if you go back to your roots, when you received Christ and you received the hope of the gospel, you did not swim to him. You were already out to sea drifting and you were not brought to him and brought to shore through your own strength swimming against the current. He brought you to shore. And so now, whenever you get pushed back out to sea, you can't drift from the hope of the gospel and not look to Christ and try to get back in your own strength. The hope of the gospel is Christ. And we see that in verses 15 through 20 in a very all-encompassing way. And brothers and sisters, this right here could take 20 sermons to get at the richness here. So we won't be unpacking everything here, but I want to talk about it because this is where Paul is just putting on display the hope of the gospel, which is our preeminent Lord and shepherd, Jesus. So the first section, 15 and 16, Jesus preeminent over creation. Jesus is the builder, the artisan, the designer, the source, the origin the creator of everything that is created. 
and he's preeminent over it. And don't get caught up on the word firstborn there. Whenever we think of that in English, the first meaning or definition that comes up is firstborn in sequence. Like I have a firstborn, it's the one that I was born first. But what is meant here is actually also used throughout scripture. It means the other definition, which is to be distinguished from, uh, to be preeminent among your siblings. And so Jesus, although he took on flesh and became human like us, he's distinguished from and preeminent as God and as creator. It all came from him. And the aim of it all is him. It was created through him and for him. And Paul, just I love it whenever he does these series, uh, 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 just lists out these things, and at the end you're just like, yeah, that's everything. Paul says, everything visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things. That's it. He's preeminent overall. I'm going to shoot over 17. We'll come back to it. But 18 through 20 talks about him as preeminent over the new creation, over the redeemed. Jesus went to the grave, conquered the grave, rose from the dead, and now is the, uh, he has pioneered a new humanity that he's preeminent and distinguished from them as well. He's the hope of them. He's the one who, like he created all things, he brought the new creation into being. And he reconciled all things or is reconciling all things to himself on heaven and earth. And right there in the middle, verse 17, is Jesus holding all things together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the only way to remain stable and steadfast, to continue in the faith, to not shift from the hope of the gospel, is to look to Christ, who did what was impossible for us, he beat the riptide of pressure that came against him and he remained faithful to the end. You and I never have done it and we never will be able to do it. We'll never be able to do it in our own strength. Jesus conquered death so that we could look to him and be freed from its grip so that we could be faithful, not in our own strength, but as we look to him. You know, Jesus experienced... A lot of things that we experience. More than we think. I bet you didn't ever think about Jesus experiencing the trauma of a PCS cycle. A three year PCS cycle. But he did. He did. His active duty starting date was at some point when he was 30. And when he was 33 he experienced a permanent change of station. He did. It's probably a little more traumatic than any of the PCSs you've gone through. But on a less cheesy note, let me say this. Jesus knew that he would soon be leaving, but got deeply involved in relationships. John said that he was the apostle, uh, the disciple that Jesus loved. Jesus loved the people he was with. He wept. He cared for them. Sometimes we, we overlook the fact that Jesus had emotions and hurt when he had to leave. But even though he was God, he was also human and experiencing the pain of departure. I remember Jesus saying at table, he said, guys, I'm not going to drink wine with you again until we drink it again 
in the new kingdom. He's like looking forward to doing, I'm looking forward to doing this again with you. This is our last supper together. I'm looking forward to doing it again. I'm going to miss you guys. Like having this right here, us sitting around a table, but we're going to have it again. So Jesus hurt when he had to leave, but he got deeply involved anyway. Like many of you, he knew that he had a departure soon. He knew he was taken off, but he got involved. And because of Jesus, you can sink down roots where you know you'll only be stationed a few years. Because unlike Jesus, who had everything ripped away from him at the cross, you won't lose everything. You will be rooted in him. You can, you can do it because of Jesus, because you won't lose everything. You'll be rooted in him, and you will have loved and served well. And your disillusionment, Jesus experienced that too. He was disappointed by the lack of faith he saw in his community. He was outraged by the abuse and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. This disillusionment culminated when he, the sinless son of God, was crucified at the request of the people who were supposedly waiting for the Messiah. That is disillusioning right there. But because he was willing to experience that and not be deterred by others' actions, no matter how hurtful, no matter how disappointing people were around him in the church, He continued undeterred, and he became the one we can look to and never be disillusioned by. The closer you look into the details of Jesus, the more he exceeds any expectations you could have for a person. Jesus is the one you can be in awe of and never fear that you're going to find out a scandal, a cover-up, a lie. He became the one we can look to and never be disillusioned by. And that is why We can stay in the church where people don't meet our expectations. Jesus will, and Jesus calls us, just like him, to stay with people even when they don't meet our expectations and for them to stay with us when we don't meet theirs. Lastly, Jesus was rejected, one, so that we could be accepted, but also Jesus was rejected so we could do some rejecting, not of people, but of our sinful desires. We can reject those things that he took to the cross because he took it there, nailed it to the cross because he conquered it. We can reject it. We don't have to be determined, have our identity determined by these other things anymore. We can take on the identity of son or daughter that we have in him. No longer taking our identity and having it determined by our appearance our accomplishments, our origin, our job and our rank, our food preferences, our sexual preferences. Indeed, we can lay all of that before Christ now and hold it loosely because we've been given a hope that is so much greater and a secure place to put our roots. Now I'm going to conclude with a question. And after this, uh, the team's going to come on up and they're going to play a couple songs, and we're going to sing together, and then, um, and then we're going to have our time of, of response. Uh, but I want to I ask you this question. Are you anxiously fixated on the wild currents of your heart and the wild currents of the culture, or are you fixated on Christ, looking to him, beholding his glory, his power, 
his love for you and his work at the cross, your only way back to shore, your only way back to your roots.